Welcome to Follow Your Fire, a podcast on life, work, and purpose. Join us as we reckon with the questions, what should I do with my life? Do I have a purpose? And if so, how the heck do I figure it out? We'll hear some real stories, get some real ideas about how to find purpose, and have as much fun as we can along the way. I'm Melissa Pinnell, life coach, purpose guide, and your host on this journey. I am so glad to have you along. Oh, hey guys, welcome to the first episode. So glad to have you here. Uh, We're about to meet the first guest. His name is Curtis Buzanski. It's a fun last name if you want to say it. Buzanski. Curtis is a therapist and addiction specialist. He knows a ton about trauma and how it relates to both addiction and mental health in general. He's an expert in his field. He actually trains other professionals in the mental health and addiction world. I've gone to some of these trainings. They're really cool. It's crazy how many of us as humans carry around the kind of trauma that you don't even realize you have because it's just so normal. And past trauma really affects you. Sometimes it just means it's a part of our makeup. Sometimes it leads to severe addiction and mental health disorders and real big life-altering stuff. So he'll describe that in the interview. I'm lucky enough to call Curtis a friend and mentor who has sat with me multiple times in my own academic and professional path and just discussed direction and options and who to trust and who to be wary of. And just a disclaimer that he really just helps people to trust themselves, which is a really valuable skill and often what I would walk away from our conversations feeling. So he's a pretty cool dude, very good at what he does. And if you met Curtis on the street, or maybe you went to one of his trainings, you think, okay, cool, this is a pretty collected, pretty professional, together guy. He's probably never been arrested or been a potty mouth trucker or gotten life advice from a reality star and he probably doesn't have poems memorized and if you thought any of that you would actually be wrong on all accounts because all of that stuff is true all of that is a part of his story and I know that now because I got to hear that story and now you're going to hear his story too and part of what I'm excited to share in this podcast in general is that other people's stories don't always look the way that we think they will. We only get a thin slice of each other, the present day version for the most part, right? It's the one that you're meeting. When within all of us, there's like this Russian doll of a story where there's these previous versions of the people that others have been, the people that we have been, things we've done, how we got to where we're at today, And it's easy to think we know someone else and that we know how they got to where they're at when really there's always a story. There's always more than meets the eye. So Curtis's journey took some really unexpected turns and I think you're going to be surprised at a few different corners. I know I was. I also think you're going to be moved and maybe learn a little bit more about Curtis and yourself by the end of the interview. I am really happy to introduce you to the very first episode Here is my interview with Curtis Buzanski, licensed marriage family therapist, and my friend. Here you go. Hi, Curtis. Thank you for joining us. It really means a lot. Of course. My pleasure to be here. We have already heard about your credentials and your background, so I would really just like to ask you 
kind of just from from your perspective, what do you do for work? How would you describe it? I am a licensed therapist and an addiction counselor. My specialty, kind of the niche that I work within, is working with people who have addictions, but also mainly a history of trauma. And so I am trained in a specialized modality called the Comprehensive Resource Model that really helps resolve and consolidate trauma so that it doesn't keep haunting people in the different ways that it can continue to haunt people. I know more about your background, but I just want to point out how important it is that you integrate trauma into your work because as you you write a lot about this, a lot of people struggle with unresolved trauma and maybe don't realize it and don't have a name for it. And and obviously the field in which you work, um, primarily substance abuse, mental health, co-occurring disorders, it really is such a underserved population, I guess I would say. So yeah. I never sought out to be here. I was a high school dropout, and my drug counselor, when I got sober, told me I should do counseling. (laughs) And so I didn't know what else to do with my life, so I started doing drug counseling when I was 19 years old. And the more I started working with addiction and understanding my own addiction, the more I saw trauma popping up. And I wasn't adequately skilled to help them, which I don't like doing. I have codependent tendencies. So (laughs) I wanted to find out how to help my people. So then I started exploring trauma more and really understanding it. And the more I researched and understood trauma, the more I realized how prevalent it is in society in general, not just in the addiction population, but understanding that there's there's shock trauma that's overt and shocking, and then there's covert, unintentional relational trauma that's that's very subtle, but just as impacting. And I think both of them are extremely prevalent in our society. I mean, there's a lot of talk right now going on about the epidemic of feeling alone in a crowd. Mm. That, that is an epidemic right now. To me, that is relational trauma that is that is a trauma of being in relation with others and so i it's extremely i just see it everywhere it's hard for me to not see it now Mm, yeah and i think that covert trauma really is the uh kind of pervasive like you said it's it's so present but it's kind of like if we it's the water that we swim in people are just so used to living with relational trauma that when you said that my mind went to witnessing you know maybe it didn't happen to you but you watched your mom get beat up or you know things that people might not feel validate them uh, or are valid enough to head to therapy or start doing some work so super important work that you're doing and actually you said something that made me made me wonder as a therapist you're having conversations and of course you have your work, but then you also have your life and the people and relationships in it, the grocery store clerk, the accountant, I don't know. Do you end up seeing, I guess I might call them symptoms. Like, is it hard for you to turn that part of you off? In certain contexts, it is. In general public, with people I don't know, I can feel it a little better. Like if I'm, if I'm not consciously trying to 
protect myself and guard myself. I can, I can just kind of pick up on it. it. It's kind of a sick joke, like the that movie, The Sixth Sense, where he's like, I see dead people everywhere. Like I feel like if I really let my walls down and I just navigate it through society, I can just kind of feel and see trauma in people everywhere. Mm, um, yeah. So I try not to do that. In close friends and acquaintances and colleagues, I'm pretty good at switching off the analyzing mode in my mind. And some people get self-conscious with me, like, are you analyzing me right now? That's exactly uh, my right. joke is always, <laughs> why don't you do that for free? So, <laughs> and that is I, comforting, I'm sure. Yeah, I, so I try to turn it off, but it's hard sometimes because sometimes people will say something that they don't really know the magnitude of what they just said but i understand the magnitude of what they just said and and it can kind of linger with me for a little bit mm, yeah yeah so i think that's a, another interesting part of what you do because you work with people because you i'm sure have tools to be a witness and hold space for some pretty big things both uh, you know tellings emotions that you have honed, it sounds like, an ability um, in, a, in a compassionate way to put up some guards. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So our brain and body has a magnificent ability to heal itself. And that's what I'm facilitating is, is people helping heal themselves. But if I'm not well and healthy myself then it's going to spill over into the work that I do, my marriage, my relationships, my friendships, and all that. So uh, self-care got very important for me, one, because I was overworking myself and seeing upwards to 35 clients a week, which is far and above the average therapist, five days a week working with heavy stuff, Mm, uh, not taking care of myself. And I got hit with an autoimmune disorder, a low thyroid, all sorts of health issues that really forced me to take care of me first. Mm, And so that really sent me on a journey. I've always been on this journey. I'm 23 years sober, so I've always been on the journey of working on myself. But the last three years have really been about how do I take care of myself? How do I nurture my body and my soul and protect it? Mm. And so I've had to learn how to not absorb energy all the time. I used to think it was a very cool skill and gift that I could be in a room of people and pretty reliably pick up on who struggles with what. Mm. But that's not good for me. It's yeah. not good for me, and and they're not asking me to do that. So that's not good for them. Like it's invasive. It's a, it's it's not respecting their boundaries, and and so I've had to do some work around protecting how I navigate the world and and what I pick up on in the world. Yeah, and it sounds like you learned that the hard way, which is I always the hard way. Yeah, yeah. Which is which is how I learn things. <laughs> You know what, Curtis? I think it's how a lot of us learn things. It would be so nice in some ways to just watch and be like, you know what? That person suffers from compassion fatigue. I'm, I'm going to develop 
these self-care tools before I even go into practice. But it, it makes sense that it, t- it took some time and took some experience. So yeah, it I does. actually think the great motivator. I want to back us up a little bit and, sure. um, and ask about, I know we kind of, if, if I could say we started a point in your story, it was when you were, was it 18 when you got sober? 17. 17. So you were really yeah. young when you got sober. Mm-hmm. So I actually want to go back further than that and try and zoom with me here. We're going back to little kid Curtis and he is in like third grade and everyone's making these poster boards. And, and one of the questions is like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Do you remember what that little boy wanted to be when he grew when he growed up? <laughs> yeah. When I wanted to grow up, I <laughs> I was all about astronaut, firefighter, doctor, mm. probably military was in there as a boy. I had a odd obsession with guns as a child. Those probably would have been my main ones at that age, I I would think. It's yeah. interesting because when, you, when you're describing those, they kind of sound like we're around the same age. And I don't know if kids' books are still like this, but they're kind of like the professions you see in, in the books. Like, these are the things you can be. A yeah. doctor, a dump truck totally. driver. <laughs> like, that's not the most yeah. common. But so, yeah. so there wasn't like any one thing that you, you were just sure, okay, I'm going to be a fireman. I have my sights set on it. It was kind of like little kid Curtis was all over the place and just sort of um, knew he was going to do something. But I would say I always had a fascination with space. Hmm. So astronaut was probably one I lingered on the most. My parents designed my my ceiling as a child with these an actual map of the stars, the winter sky, and there were holes that they meticulously filled in with glow-in-the-dark paint. Oh, my and gosh. So at night, my ceiling looked like the winter sky. Now, like, uh, sorry, let me ask you. Did you say that that was accurate? Like they actually had constellations was, in the right place? Yeah. And Wow, yep. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to interview your parents after this. <laughs> that is so interesting. They, that would be an interesting interview for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, because I got a little older, I really wanted to be a fighter pilot. Actually, I wanted to fly jets. And I learned that you couldn't have bad eyesight. Mm. And I had bad eyesight. And I think from there, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm. And around 12 is when I started getting into alcohol and drugs. So really, that came online, I think, before I even had a chance to think about what I want to do with my life or what I want to be. And so there's not a whole lot I can even think of around even being connected to knowing what I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm. Because at an early age, I just wanted to get high. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty young to start down that path. What was going on for you around 12 or 13 that that became the go-to I always say I never felt right in my skin I always if I look at my childhood I actually chased intoxication from very early on I would obsess about GI Joe's and just be consumed with GI Joe's I got in trouble as a kid for playing with matches and lighting fires 
They're very antisocial. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also a precursor to serial killers. But I don't think what? I don't think that's the path that you chose. <laughs> Another path I chose. I probably could have headed down that way, but um, we'll talk I about that later. Into the fire department because I kept playing with matches despite getting in trouble. Sugar, right? I would go and tell my parents I was going to play with a friend and hide at the donut store and eat donuts by myself. Wow. So I just always did stuff like that and then just felt really like I missed a class everybody got, just kind of out of place. Like I didn't come with an instruction manual. Mm. Um, And had a difficult transition to middle school and was getting bullied and I remember this this guy Frank Kosmeyer I'll never forget his name if you're listening <laughs> Frank Kosmeyer you better get yourself in check <laughs> well he was the good one so Frank Kosmeyer oh, okay. actually came and defended him. me oh thank you okay came cool. and defended me and he was wearing a flannel around his waist with a Metallica shirt and, uh, this is so 90s. <laughs> right? Asked me if I smoked weed. Of course, I said yes, even mm. though I didn't. And it just kind of took off from there. And and what I found with alcohol and drugs is three rewards. I, one, the intoxication felt good. Two, it eased a lot of my internal discord, anxieties, and feeling out of place and all that. And then that culture just took me in. Come on in. We don't care. I was super awkward and dressed mm. weird and didn't know what to do. And they just wrapped me up and took me in. Yeah, that acceptance. That's so important really to us just as human animals, but especially at that time that we, you know, right after puberty when it's like, it feels like life, literally yeah. life. So if that was the group that kind of took you into the fold, it makes sense that that would be a part of what drew you in. And, and I wish I would love to just, maybe that's another, another show where we just talk about the journey in addiction because it, it is wrought with, I mean, I think you'll agree with me here. Often that's where some trauma is accumulated when you're out there. Absolutely. It's, it's so often um, can be, and I'm not saying this is the case with you, but can be caused by trauma, can accumulate trauma. Either way you started using drugs around 12 or 13 and then it sounds like went you know hardcore for about four years and how did sobriety come into play it went full on right away absolutely so i got suspended from that middle school <laughs> like it i went full in right away so my parents tried to move me to a private school thinking I just needed to get away from the bad people. Mm. Uh, and I just found rich people with more <laughs> money and more drugs. Um, mm-hmm. And I got kicked out of that school and went to another school and got kicked out of that school, mostly for just not even going. <laughs> I became like extremely truant and then was kind of, supposed to go to this continuation school for the really bad kids right and and pretty much got kicked out of a school district so they didn't really know what to do with me and right around that so i'm in this like limbo of at home nobody knew where to put me and i'd already been arrested a bunch of times and the cops were at my parents house like every weekend it was 
awful on them. Mm. I had run away and done things like that. And I decided to break into a house to try to get some weed mm. and uh, got caught. They came home while I was there. And my parents, two days later, sent me away to rehab. Mm. And it was my third burglary offense. So they were going to try me as an adult at the age of 17. Wow. And um, so I knew I needed to take it serious. I had tried, like, I need to quit doing hallucinogens and just smoke weed. I need to quit smoking weed and just drink. I need to not do liquor and just drink beer. I knew I was out of control, so, and but nothing ever worked. So in my mind, this was like, I'm just going to reset, get some people off my back, and maybe drink when I get back home. And I had this weird realization a couple weeks into it after I had kind of a hallucinogenic-induced psychotic break in there, <laughs> like, which wasn't fun. Um, you know what's funny I is I thought you were going to say spiritual experience because – and obviously, they, they both happen from these hallucinogenic trials that people go on. And yeah. um, so it's fascinating to me that the psychotic break taught you quite a bit what you were about to share. So after the psychotic break. The psychotic break, I just wasn't in any place. I was not grounded in reality. I had done way too much LSD. I, I was constantly hallucinating. It finally tapered off. And what I realized about two weeks into it is my life was already significantly better and I had done nothing but just stay sober. Mm. And my family was talking to me again. I felt better. Life was feeling better and I hadn't even done anything. And that was when I had this moment of like, maybe I should put a little more into this. But of course, at 17, thinking about staying sober the rest of my life was mind-boggling. And so if I had a spiritual awakening, the awakening I had was realizing during this one talk that it just needed to be like 10 minutes at a time. Mm. 10 minutes at a time, one day at a time. Like, I just don't need to do that today. And that finally resonated with me, and that instilled enough motivation to keep going. And then by the end of my stint in rehab, I had enough healthy fear around relapsing that it also motivated me. The day I got back, I went into a meeting, and I, I, they found me a, a clean and sober high school that I went to. That had drug wow. counseling and group counseling. I didn't even know those existed. Uh, as far as I know, there may still be one in San Rafael. That's where it started. The one in Santa Rosa where I was at closed. There wasn't enough funding. Okay. Uh, but I don't know if I would have stayed sober had I not gone to that. I mean, high school was my bar, right? That's where I dealt drugs, bought drugs, met my people. And yeah. That yeah. was hard. No, totally. So much in what you just said to me, I just kept thinking of the butterfly effect of just how these relatively small decisions, 10 minutes at a time, accumulated for you because yeah. um, because they did. And and actually, I did want to go back to something you mentioned. You had three burglaries and you were going to get tried as an adult, but I don't think you did. What happened there? So 
I'm not a great criminal. I broke into <laughs> a, a family friend's house, um, and they agreed if I finished probation, they would not press charges. Okay. And so that was a big motivator for me, and they eventually dropped the residential burglary charges. I was already on probation, and so I, I completed it, and, and those charges never got pressed. Once again, butterfly effect. And, yeah. and I, I bring that up over and over, not to say that you wouldn't even be sitting right here, because obviously we don't know that. But I do think it's fascinating to look at all of these small instances that stacked up and and did dictate your path. And it sounds like just from what you shared about those intense addiction years, you experienced quite a bit and enough to, as you to use your words, have a healthy fear. And how powerful to have that at a young age, but, mm-hmm. but with that, you know, life keeps going, right? So, yeah. so you went to rehab. What is your sobriety date? September 29th, 1996. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So you're 17, you're sober. Let's go to the point that you're done with high school. And what, what did you set out to do? I know you mentioned already that the addiction counselor was like, Hey, you'd be good at this. Was that something that happened right away? Or did you spend a couple years working at a surf shop or like, yeah, I got out of high school and I was actually a busser at Johnny Garlic's working for Guy Fieri in Santa Rosa. He, Seriously? He hired me on and gave me a shot when I had no work experience. And uh, See, this is a part of your me. path I've never heard of. I'm so glad to be asking you these questions. Yeah. He was, uh, this he is was pre-diners, good, was... drive-ins, and dives? That guy, yeah. Okay. Yep. And um, he actually, I feel I'm pretty special now. I've had a lot of important people in my life along the way teach me something. He taught me a lot about work ethic. Mm. I didn't have work ethic. I had drug ethic. I knew how to lie, cheat, and steal. I was really good at that. I did not know how to show up and be accountable and work hard and he was really good at teaching me good work ethic yeah. and uh, even kind of inspired me to quit smoking. I remember I went to go take a smoke break and and he, he saw what I was doing. He just looked disappointed. <laughs> I was like, mm. no, my boss is disappointed. You know, yeah. I quit. So he had a positive in- impact on me. And during this time, I was in an outpatient program in Santa Rosa called Kids Off Chemicals. And it involved individual group and family counseling. And I had pretty much completed most of the program at this point was just doing the group counseling each week. And I've been doing it for a little while now, probably a couple of years. And my life was starting to get busier. I also got a job at a hardware store and was starting to work full time as a young adult and wanted to quit coming to the group because it was inconvenient and the counselor probably knew I needed to keep coming but framed it as I hate to lose you can I pay you as a peer counselor to sit in on the group and co-run the group with me wow and I, I was like sure you know and in this was like 1998 probably at this time 99 he offered to pay me 20 bucks an hour. Oh my goodness. Money. We were money. we were all making like 
what, like $7 back then? <laughs> that, yeah, something. So I said yes, you know, I was super honored. And I didn't know what I was doing. I would just show up. But I remember this one day, I was it was the group with parents and kids where they're all there in the group. And at the end of it, he turned to me and he said, you ask questions that people go to school to learn how to ask. You mm. should do this. And I had no clue what I wanted to do. School was always super difficult for me. I am not a naturally good student. Mm. I knew I should be continuing school. So at the time, I was at the junior college, just taking general ed and barely passing. And so I started taking some psychology classes. And those, I always got A's in. Mm. Every other class, I struggled to get more than a C, but all my psych classes, I got A's and it fascinated me. Yeah. And I initially thought I actually wanted to do um, criminal profiling and forensic psychology. Mm. Uh, and that was kind of my goal for a long time. And then I realized you spend a lot of time in a courtroom with those and I, I didn't really want to do that. And so I kind of made a jump to pursue clinical psychology and I moved to Sacramento to go to Sac State. Shortly after that, I started going into at-risk high schools and group homes with foster kids and doing drug counseling and anger management with them. And that was more, I wasn't as much of like just kind of a peer counselor at that point. I was an actual AOD counselor. Once I got in that role, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Mm. That's when it really was like, this is what I want to be doing. I'm hungry for this. Yeah. Uh, let's stop at that point. And I want you to, if you could, talk more about that feeling. You were just describing kind of the thoughts that came along with it. So I think that that point is a mystery for a lot of people, as in how do I know this is enough of my passion. This is that I'm passionate enough, that I'm interested enough to walk further down this road. So what did it feel like for you to have that kind of come into focus? Oh, good question. How could I describe that? I think how I could describe it is it just fit right. Like it fit right. Like I had, I tried on something and it was like, this fits right. And I was never a great athlete, so I don't think I, I can really experience what athletes refer to as the zone. Mm. But in a sense, that's also what it felt like is, oh, I'm here. I'm in this zone. I feel confident, capable. Sure, I had some anxieties and insecurities still. I was brand new. But this feels like where I'm meant to be. And it seemed more authentic, genuine, and natural than anything else I had done. I had changed my major a bunch of times in college, probably eight times. I, I would change it to, I did still try to go after firefighting. And then I was like, I got a bad knee and asthma. Like, I'm not going to be a firefighter. <laughs> Let's get that up. Uh -huh. And then I would get caught up in wanting to be super rich, so I would get into business. And none of those classes intrigued me. Mm. And every time I would come back to psychology, and it just 
captured my attention. I got good grades. It fascinated me. And then once I started really being hands-on in the field, it just felt like I'm good at this. Mm, Yeah. I'm glad you took a little bit to reflect on that because I do think that it can be mysterious, but as you describe it, it's it's almost like this recognition is kind of what I'm hearing. You talked yeah. about fitting, and I pictured like a puzzle piece, you know, just fitting together. But if you've never seen the other part of this piece, you don't necessarily recognize it right away. So it sounds like it took a little bit of time. It did take time. Like getting there, you mean? Or, or once I even got there, it took time to feel right. Yeah. Well, just from my understanding, at this point in your journey, uh, you're, you've changed majors, you're done with Sac State. Is that, are we going to go to when you've actually started working or are you still doing, because I know actually in your profession, maybe we should talk about, there's the degree that you get and then there's the hours that go alongside it. And I don't know if we've defined if we're at your undergrad or uh, graduate. So let's dive into that. What, what part of college are you at? Yeah. So I'm still at Sac State. Uh, but I was a drug counselor, so I had a certification to be a drug counselor, not a therapist. So I was at Sac State as a drug counselor, going into these group homes and, and really kind of rough at-risk schools and, and running groups within the schools and group homes on drug addiction, substance abuse, anger management, communication, all that. Mm-hmm while I was pursuing to get my bachelor's and then ultimately enroll in my master's program. Mm, Okay. And in that trajectory with the bachelor's and the certifications that you acquired in order to do that kind of drug counseling, did you feel clearer and clearer or did you just continue walking down the path to more and more, I guess you could call it expertise because I assume the more academically wise you got also the more knowledge you accumulated. The knowledge did not solidify for me, actually. There, I guess there is a chunk of time I left out. Before I started doing drug counseling in those group homes, I was actually taking classes and driving a flatbed truck hauling steel and lumber around. So mm-hmm. I was kind of this truck driver, working with people who swear all day and cuss at each other and put each other down. Nice. I do remember specifically coming home to my wife one day and being like, how am I ever going to be a therapist? We call each other horrific names and put <laughs> each other down and and talk about how feelings are bad. And I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. So I did have a lot of fear around, can I even do this? Um, and she kind of was like, you'll do great. Like, just keep going. And then when I got out of that line of work and started doing the drug counseling is when it really solidified solidified it for me of yeah that's where I this is where I want to go and the undergraduate knowledge wasn't really super stimulating for me I think my undergraduate GPA was like a 3.2 it still was kind of difficult for me when I got to my master's I graduated with a 4.0 it was like this fascinates me this is applicable I can use this and I soaked it up and I, and I did really well and yeah. that launched me into kind of a new phase as well as launching me into meeting a a new mentor that really took me to another level as well. Uh, Well, thank you for kind of unpacking that. And actually, I'm glad I sort of stumbled onto the 
talking about knowledge accumulation, showing you, oh, this is what I'm good at, because it wasn't that. It sounds like it was the, I'm sure in combination with becoming smarter in this particular area, but the trucking experience is interesting to me because it sounds like you had these very kind of juxtaposed parts of your personality. Yes. And I think that's important because a lot of us have those. I mean, we all have those. We're humans. And, yeah. and I actually experienced the same thing, just working in, in, in mental health, in wellness, which I don't like that word, but thinking, oh my gosh, can I not joke like this? Or can I not like think this really crass humor is funny because it's in complete opposition to healing or acceptance. And so I'm glad you touched on that for one, just because it, it shed a little bit of light on something you had to overcome, which was this thought of, can I turn and, and pivot and do well in this very wellness oriented field? Yeah, definitely. So, so unless there's anything you want to add, I want to, so we're kind of, we're, we're past college. You've officially gotten your master's. You're getting your hours. You, you mentioned actually you met a mentor. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I think that butterfly effect that you were speaking about earlier really plays out in my life really well. I would always panic about the future. What? How is this all going to play out? How is this all going to play out? How's it, and I would always, I think that's where recovery really helped me of, let me focus on what's right in front of me and do the next right thing. Let me just finish this homework assignment, this class, this semester, this. And I remember when I came out to Sacramento, the counselor who hired me, I asked him, who should I work for out here? And he told me about this guy, John Daly, and said, John Daly's the man. He's who you want to connect with. I looked him up. I knew I didn't have the credentials to work for him. It was kind of above where I was at. But I kind of put his name in the back of my head of like, I want to work for John Daly one day. Well, I graduated Sac State, applied to a master's program, University of San Francisco, I'm about halfway through it, and I see that John Daly is going to be my next professor talking about substance abuse. Mm. And I was like, what? And I had no idea he was a professor there. He comes, we hit it off, and he hires me as an intern within his program, which was a dual diagnosis outpatient program for adolescents and young adults. Mm. And that really just unfolded very naturally. I think if I would have tried to make that happen, I would have ruined it. Mm-hmm. But I just kind of did that 10 minutes at a time, what's mm-hmm. right in front of me, and try to keep my eyes open to what unfolds yeah. and not just unfolded so naturally. And then he really took not just my professional development, but... I think if you want to do good in this field, you have to keep personally developing. And it took my personal development to another level as well as my professional development. I'm just going to note really fast, the leaf blowers are outside and I'm really hoping it doesn't affect the recording. <laughs> so Okay. I don't hear them on my end. You don't? Okay. For a second, I was like, should we stop? But if you don't hear it on your end, honestly, it should probably be fine. Screw the leaf blowers. They ruin my life every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, the baby's sleeping. I know. So you meet John Daly. I think that's really, once again, bringing up that small decisions the butterfly effect alongside small decisions and sort of just allowing things to unfold in front of you. I also think it's important to point out 
how helpful it can be to have a mentor. Because I think in this in this day, it's something we we know what it is. Most people know, you know, if you ask them to define it, what a mentor is. But I don't actually know many people who have one. And I think it can be enormously helpful on our path. So can you talk a little bit about what having a mentor meant for you in your path? Gosh, yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting when you read about the research around resiliency and why do some people thrive and some people struggle. Resiliency has a huge issue to do with it. And what they found is there's two variables that really help people become resilient. One is the taking the risk to ask for help. And then they've also found those people elicit in others the desire to help them naturally. Whereas I'm sure we've all met those people that more elicit the desire to create space from them. Mm. Those people really struggle hard because they don't find themselves with mentors around them. So I think I've been really fortunate that I've ended up with these people in my life. Even the boss who I worked for when I was driving the truck was very much about business ethics and being a good person in the world and treating employees and people right and made great financial decisions. And I could always speak to him about how would you invest this? What do you think I should do with this phase of my life? And I think the importance of having a mentor is absolutely when when I'm trying to just take the next step, but it gets dark and I don't know what is the next step. Mentors can really help be that comforting force of like, you're on the right path or here's the direction to head as well as, and it may not always feel good, but exposing, hey, here's what you still have to work on. You know, I remember Guy Fieri pulling me aside and going, Curtis, you're lazy. Like, Mm -hmm. I see how you're rolling that hose up, and it's Mm -hmm. (laughs) half-assed. And I was like, I am lazy. Oh, my God. I don't want to work hard. You know, and I (laughs) had, you know, another, you know, John Daly pulled me aside and was like, you have more work to do of your own. Like, Mm -hmm. you need to go back to therapy. And that didn't feel great. You know, at that point, I was many years sober, done counseling, done a bunch of stuff. But I heard it and got back. And so I think, you know, mentors don't just help us and teach us about what we should do or or how to get better um, in a specific skill set, but also how do we improve as humans? Mm. You know, and people in the world and as a as a person in the world how do I show up not just as a therapist but as as a customer in a grocery store and as a customer shopping during the holidays and you know I never know who might end up being my client and if I'm walking through the world bad and then that person ends up in my office and had a bad experience with me. That's not helpful. Mm, yeah. So I think 
I think mentors have taught me a lot about that too, of like always growing and developing ourselves. I'm really glad you shed light on a mentor isn't just someone who is ahead of you on the path saying, come on, you can do it. You're doing great. Here's what I did. Because that's actually what is on the forefront of my mind when I think of mentorship. But how true is it that it's so much more helpful to actually have someone that'll be honest with you and and ask you to do better for your sake? You know, yeah. going go back to therapy, that's a pretty big thing for someone to say. And obviously the way I just said it is a little harsh, but I'm yeah. wondering in that moment, you know, this was years ago at this point. How many years ago was this? That would have been like 2010 so like, when, when he said that, yeah, nine, nine years, years ago. ago. In the moment, how did you, how did you handle it? Were you very accepting and sort of like, you know what, you're right. Or was it kind of hard to hear and you had to go talk to your wife about it and sort of cuddle and then come back to it? I, I kind of had a realization already of like, oh, wow, I think I have more work to do, but I kind of didn't want to and kind of didn't want to fully accept it and was in a little bit of denial about it. And I was bouncing it off him. And so he was like, yeah, you got more work to do. It's pretty much like that. Mm. And, and my immediate response was to not do it, but I had to check that because I ask people to do it. Mm. So why am I not willing to do it? And I've always wanted, you know, of all the trauma modalities I, I'm trained in, I've always done them on myself first. I won't do any, I won't ask my clients to do anything I haven't done myself. Mm. So I had to look at like, why do I not want to do this? And at that moment, what came to me was like, I don't like feeling small. I felt like as a counselor, I liked being in that role which is interesting because I don't view myself as a, a figure of power as a counselor I'm actually very much I think of myself as very much on the same plane as my clients I'm no better than them but it felt vulnerable and weak yeah. to think about having to go back yeah. and once I realized that I realized like how irrational that was and and how how much it conflicted with I don't have that same view of who I work with. Why do I have that view of myself? Mm. And so then I was able to just kind of get back in and, and go back there. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for kind of going back to that moment and slowing down and taking us through the process because I think that's another uh, difficulty in understanding. And I'm speaking, I often speak from the perspective of my former self. And I think, well, either I'm this person or that person. Either I'm someone who can accept criticism and I'm just loving and and all into self-work and I never curse or I'm someone who, you know, my ego gets inflamed if someone tells me I have work to do and, you know, the whole crass jokes thing. And, and really, you know, someone said something that might have like popped up your, hey, I've already gotten this far down the path. I'm, I'm doing this, this and this right. And so at first, I just, I think that pause is important that, that it's okay to have both of those reactions. And once again, to keep just doing the next right thing and the next right thing. So yeah. you said something a couple minutes ago about showing up as a person in the world, how, you know, there's who you want to be professionally. And then there's just, um, 
your life, right? The way you go through the world, how you treat the grocery store clerk, how you treat your relationships. And I, I want to kind of hone in here because I think this is kind of where, you know, I told you we're really trying to stay a little bit focused on purpose and how does purpose, your purpose in this world inform your work and also other areas of your life. So if I could make this a question, it would be how, how do you feel purpose in your work as it currently is? That's a great question. How would I word it? I feel like my purpose, so my philosophy is within us all is a true, core, authentic, good enough, lovable, healthy self. And over the years, it gets dinged up roots grow over it, scars, layers, protective walls, and and we adapt all of these inaccurate ways of viewing ourselves and the world. I feel like my purpose is to help people get in touch with their true authentic self mm. and heal, help them heal everything that gets in the way of that so they can thrive that is my purpose and that carries over how i navigate the world is i heard this guy andrew chapman put it well that we're all just actors and going through the world acting out our wounds and our wants Mm. and if i can navigate the world with that perspective of this person is just acting out their wounds and their wants. I can really bring compassion and patience and love into pretty much any situation. And I feel like that is another purpose of mine of just to really help people be kind and gentle to themselves that we're all just trying to navigate this human experience that from the start, the truth is we're going to suffer mm. and how do we walk through that? Yeah. And so I try to be a safe grounding force in the world that's not safe and grounding. And that Curtis is why we call you the spiritual samurai. <laughs> I think that's what we call you. I love that. I think that that was all very important. And I do see how it isn't like there's this compartment of work, this compartment of home, this compartment of maybe self-development for you that in general, that it sounds like I, the, the quote by Ram Das kept coming to my mind. We're all just walking each other home. And that's what I yeah. heard. Allowing for the humanity is really, you know, when you think about the wounds and the wants, like that's the human experience acting itself out in some not so pretty ways a lot of the time. And definitely. Um, so I think that's a really great way to put it. So let's imagine for a second that you don't just have this one life. You actually have five different lifetimes, complete lifetimes, to do five different things. What are your alternative lives? It's funny because as of like a couple of years ago when I was starting to get burned out, I started thinking about, okay, what is my exit job? Like if I'm going to bail out of this career what am I going to do? Truck driving. <laughs> I wanted to fly a helicopter. 
Okay. I would love to learn how to fly a helicopter one day. That, the idea of it just fascinates me so much. Mm. And I actually looked into it. It's quite expensive to become a helicopter operator. So mm. that is not in my near future, but um, sounded really interesting. Yeah. Well, this is so, a completely other, alternative life. So you got all the we're time. Talking, we're talking alternative lives here, though, not just in this life, an alternative career. Exactly. Alternative life. Man, that is that is tricky. Um, I think the idea of an explorer just mm-hmm. sounds really fascinating to me, too. Like, I, I often think about when I drive through the Sierra Nevadas or the Midwest or I'm, I'm in the forest and I think about the people that came across the plains or like forged through these crazy terrains with, with total uncertainty of what's on the other side of it that created a huge new blooming part of our history that boggles my mind of how they did it and survived and has always interested me. So and then that, there's, there's the Donner Party, too. That... There's the Donner <laughs> Party where it went terribly bad, yeah. <laughs> Let's true. just touch on that. But I, I love that. I, and I, my mind is also going to, you know, how many ways metaphorically we can, we can do that exact same thing, that exploring mentality, I guess, in terms of like new frontiers, but, but these are alternative lives. So just even being in the actual nature setting or environmental space, I guess, you'll start to kind of daydream about what that could be like. Do you have another one? Um, I would love to work with animals. I love animals. I'm very good with animals. The idea of like, just taking care of animals at a zoo or something like that sounds great to me. Like I could, I could be around animals all day long. So these are really interesting to just hear about partly because we do only have one life, right? As far as we know. And I love getting into the spiritual talks of reincarnation and, and what this life could mean. But, (laughs) but all we really know for sure is this one. And And I think something I come back to a lot, not to be a downer, but to be as as realistic and um, and forthright as possible is that we do make choices as humans and some choices cancel out other choices. Right. Yeah. A big choice I recently made, for example, was to have a daughter. That was a big one that was all right with that choice for better and for worse cancels out some other stuff. Right. and so I bring that up to say these alternative lives, what I, what I often like to ask people to do is, is think of these alternative lives and then see either A, where they already show up for you. For example, you already told us when you're driving in the mountains, you're, you're kind of in that explorer mentality. That's a part of your life today is this mm-hmm. sort of, you know, part of your psyche. And if it doesn't show up to find ways to make it right. Like if you were someone who wasn't anywhere near animals, but you love them so much, then I'd be like, Curtis, you should, you should totally get a dog, but you have dogs. But so do have two, yeah. find some way to integrate these into your life. But I, I bring it up too, because once again, I am all about pursuing, pursuing your heart, right? Like follow your fire, follow that inner spark that is 
as you were describing, we each have these kind of unique selves. That's kind of the words that you were using, gifts. And also by fully actualizing this one gift, it might mean that you don't actualize this other one, right? And that's totally okay. So I bring it up not to be a downer. I also I also wanna ask you, with the consideration to those alternative lives, what were some things that you said no to in order to say yes to therapy? That's a great question. So what have I had to give up or compromise yeah. lose in order to gain this choosing the path of a therapist in private practice I think that's an important distinction I could have chosen to go work for Kaiser or a hospital and what they provide is security and stability and predictability as a therapist in private practice, I'm my own boss, which is great, but I, I depend on me. Like, I have to make it work. Mm. So I definitely had to compromise security. Um, I, I don't have health benefits. You know, I'm a, I don't work for a company that provides benefits. I don't get holiday pay. I don't get paid vacation. Mm. Um it's hard to take a vacation longer than a week. People depend on me. I depend on them for livelihood, yeah. you know? And so that is probably one huge thing I, I had to give up. Um, I didn't, I'm not rich. Um, I feel abundant in my life. And, and actually, as a therapist um, who's really only been licensed, I've been licensed since 2013. Um, yeah, 13. Relatively short amount of time, actually, in my opinion. I'm quite successful. And so, yeah, I'm not rich, but I, I do very well. Um, and I always tell people, I think if we can find what we love strive to be the best at it and just treat people well will be successful mm. and so i'm not i'm not super rich or wealthy but i'm very comfortable i did i work four days a week i work part-time i work 28 hours a week <laughs> and i i make full-time pay so i'm pretty blessed with that yeah uh, do i hear of people who make $1.5 million a year. Yeah, I have clients who make that much money, more even, have these huge houses, have multiple houses. Does it sound great? Absolutely. Sounds great sometimes. Um, it comes with its own stressors. So mm. I think that's one thing I've, I've probably given up is, is, uh, is that pursue of just extreme wealth. Mm. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's not as much of an interest to me anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the bigger one would probably be that like safety, security, and predictability. Um, but I think it also helped me thrive. I was talking to another therapist today who just launched their private practice. And they thought they made the bad decision by just kind of going all in. And I said, no, you got to go all in. It keeps you scared to keep going and make it work. Mm -hmm. you know? And yeah. so... 
while there was some a lot of fear and uncertainty around can I make this business work, it also gave me the the fire and the passion to fight for it to work, you know, and I had to just go all in to do it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, you just answered a question I was going to ask you, and that is, I don't know if you've ever heard the term shit sandwich, but it's it's yeah. said, it's been proposed by um, Mark Manson, an author, that every job has like two fluffy pieces of really yummy white bread, and it's, and it's the 28 hours a week, it's the fulfilling feeling you get when you watch someone transform, totally. and you know, all of the benefits, and then the shit in the middle is, you're right, like no health benefits, the sense of security, holidays. And I, I just, once again, I love to talk about that aspect because every job has it, even the ones that we all dream about, you know, and I, I never really wanted to be a rock star. I can't sing, but I know that's like up there as, as far as this ideal, lots of little kids are like, I want to be a rock star. And yeah. even, even the rock stars, from what I hear, they have to travel. They're, they're not next to their family. A lot of the time there's this, you know, <laughs> questioning of do you love me for me or is it just my mad lyrics you know whatever it is every job has that so it's it's really important to touch on so thanks for doing that and And that's a theme of life right like what you're talking about is paradoxes and double binds and and i think we can get too stuck in this idealistic way of living that Everything should be good, but really good and bad can coexist, right? We can feel grief and love at the same time, happy and sad at the same time, angry and calm, and and life is actually more about the paradoxes than it is about it not being paradoxical. Like, mm. we're here to live as we're dying. You know, and, and it's like, that's what life is. Um, and then how do we, what do we do with that? There's a great poem called One Summer Day. At the end of it, she says, and what will you do with this one wild and precious life? Mm. You know, it's like, every time I hear that line, I'm like, yeah, what, like, this is one wild and precious life. Like, what am I going to do with it? I have that quote. I never knew it was from a poem, but it's, it's a cool poem. It's yeah. I'm gonna look that up. I think, I think that was all really important, and I guess it is kind of what I'm dancing around as well. And and as we you know talk about life and work and purpose and how these kind of intertwine, I think just keeping that in perspective that it is paradoxical, and in finding something that you feel immense purpose for, or tremendous passion in doing there's also life and and it isn't always easy and it doesn't mean that it's going to feel good all the time so yeah i think that's a really important point to touch on and you talked about you had a conversation today it sounds like with a therapist who just went out on this limb and opened her own practice and i think that limb is is an important one to kind of discuss when you're on it and you're feeling all of this fear and uncertainty, which I know you've been on because like you said, you're in private practice and though your practice is thriving now, it wasn't always. So what are some, what are some tools that you might suggest or have used to take those leaps and to keep going? 
I think definitely going back to, if I look back on my life, a lot of what I've done is try to build relationships. And sometimes I did it not really knowing I was doing it, but looking back, I realized I did it. I was not a great student, but the letters of recommendation I got from people really helped me a lot. The school told me that because mm-hmm. I built these relationships with one of my professors and, um, and an important person in the community and my old counselor, and they were able to, to vouch for me. And, and, and along the way, I've, I've built these relationships with people who then, when I'm scared, uncertain, struggling, they're resources for me. Mm. Not in the sense that I use people, but it sets me up for success if I can be in relationship with people and foster authentic, caring relationships that I, I'm not doing it all along. So when I launched into private practice, I had already nurtured a lot of relationships with people in the community by spending time calling them on the phone and talking to them. If it was a psychiatrist or another therapist or a doctor, informing them of how the session went that week and, and, and just fostering this relationship. So by the time I was ready to branch out, I had so many people offering support and help and do you need to sublease my office and do you need furniture and here I'll help you study for your licensing exam. And I had people just willing to go out of their way to help me that I felt supported in it. It felt possible. It, it didn't feel as risky and unsafe. There was risk to it, but I felt confident in it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I will just point out that, you know, I think, you, you made it a point to say, like, it's not like I was using people because it's not this fostering of relationships. It's very much this, um, I guess, I almost think of it as like nourishing to, yeah. to, to yourself. And also just today you were on the phone with someone in that same place. And, and Curtis, you've totally been that person for me. There's many times I've called you and had, you know, a flurry of questions about uncertainty and what do I do and how do I get past this? So I will just point out that uh, it's it, it's the gift that keeps on giving, this act of like, you know, maybe other people were sort of of service to you and you also do the same for us, so. Yeah, I try to, I think that, yeah, that's a good point. I think that's one of the distinctions. If I, I'm not just trying to take resources, but I'm also trying to give back as well what's been given to me. Yeah, so. I would like to sort of wrap up with a question that I think is important. You can think of this as your former self. You can think of this as my former self. But if you were to talk directly to that person who is uncertain what the next step they should take is, and this person could be 18, they could be 50. Ultimately, they're at a place of, I want to move forward in my life and I don't necessarily know what direction to go in. I don't know what to do next. What would you say to them? For me, I always think of it as this is 
be one wild and precious life, and it is short and also long at the same time. We on average live 80 to 90 years old. Let's be happy for 80 to 90 years, right? Like let's, or at least 50 of them. <laughs> let's be happy. So really going inward, where does your heart always go back to? What, what is your passion? What, what, what is it that excites you that you're passionate about? Even if it may not be the most secure or the most rewarding financially or it's difficult to get to, my path was not easy to get to. I had to do a lot of hours and a lot of tests and it was difficult. I just want but, to point out, you started down the path when you were 17 and what year was that? Was that 1996. So 1996. You got you got officially credentialed and licensed in 2013. 2013. So, Took me a long ways. I just think that's worth kind of reciting because it does, you know, we're talking for an hour, hour and a half, and it sounds like this, and then this happened, and then it's a natural progression. Totally. So just to just to hone in there. And that's a so, really good point. Yeah, yeah. Most of it was grinding working full-time, school part-time. It took me a really long time to, to get through that. And, but as a result, I don't ever feel like I'm working. I don't feel like I have a job, you know, where I'm like, womp, womp, I got to get up and go to work. You know, oh, it's Monday. <laughs> I don't get the Mondays. Like, mm. and I'm fortunate enough to have a thriving practice where I get to really pick who I work with. So I, I love my people. Mm. I love working with them. I love seeing them. I love helping them. I get excited to work. Sure, I get tired at the end of the day sometimes, and some days are easier than others, but but it rejuvenates me. I love what I do. And I always say, I think if we can find what we love and really just try to be the best at it and treat people kind along the way, we'll do okay. Like, we'll, we'll be okay. Yeah, All yeah. the risks that make us want to do something else will be okay. And what will you do with your one wild and precious life? Nice. I, yes. I think that was a really great place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and your experience and challenges, all of it, because I think all of it's really important. So. Of course, my pleasure. Absolutely. I think you got a cool thing going on here. If you liked what you heard today, please pass this podcast along to someone you know who would benefit. It would also be awesome if you would subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It's how we attract new guests, reach more people, and ultimately change the world. I mean, imagine what kind of world we'd live in if everyone was doing something they actually wanted to do with their life. Speaking of which, if you want to help find new purpose or figuring out what the heck to do with your life, hit me up. It's what I do as a coach. Introduce you to your highest, clearest, and most badass brave self. I promise that's the version of you the world most needs. If you're interested in coaching, would like to join my email list, or if you know someone who'd be a great guest on this podcast, shoot me an email at followyourfire at gmail.com. That's followyourfire at gmail.com.
Until next time, follow those fires, my peaches.